I turned to wake, and his calm eyes pulled me together. "'If they can't retake that ground, we're fairly carted,' I said. "'We are. Therefore they must retake it. I must get on to Mitchinson.' But as I spoke, I realized the futility of a telephone message to a man who was pretty hard up against it himself. Only an urgent appeal could affect anything. I must go myself. No, that was impossible. I must send Lefroy, but he couldn't be spared. And all my staff officers were up to their necks in the battle. Besides, none of them knew the position as I knew it. And how to get there? It was a long way round by the bridge at Loisy. Suddenly I was aware of Wake's voice. "'You had better send me,' he was saying. "'There's only one way to swim the river a little lower down.' "'That's too damnably dangerous. I won't send any man to certain death.' "'But I volunteer,' he said. "'That, I believe, is always allowed in war.' "'But you'll be killed before you can cross.' "'Send a man with me to watch. If I get over, you may be sure I'll get to General Mitchinson. If not, send somebody else by Loisy. There's desperate need for hurry, and you see yourself it's the only way." The time was past for argument. I scribbled a line to Mitchinson as his credentials. No more was needed, for Wake knew the possession as well as I did. I sent an orderly to accompany him to a starting-place on the bank. "'Good-bye,' he said, as we shook hands. "'You'll see. I'll come back all right.' His face, I remember, looked singularly happy. Five minutes later the Bosch guns opened for the final attack. I believe I kept a cool head, at least so Lefroy and the others reported. They said I went about all afternoon grinning as if I liked it, and that I never raised my voice once. It's rather a fault of mine that I bellow in a scrap. But I know I was feeling anything but calm, for the problem was ghastly. It all depended on Wake and Mitchinson. The flanking fire was so bad that I had to give up the left of the forward zone, which caught it fairly, and retire the men there to the battle zone. The latter was better protected, for between it and the river was a small wood, and the bank rose into a bluff which sloped inwards towards us. This withdrawal meant a switch, and a switch isn't a pretty thing when it has to be improvised in the middle of a battle. The Bosch had counted on that flanking fire. His plan was to break our two wings, the old Bosch plan which crops up in every fight. He left our centre at first pretty well alone, and thrust along the river-bank and to the wood of La Bruyere, where we linked up with the division on our right. Lefroy was in the first area, and Masterton in the second, and for three hours it was as desperate a business as I have ever faced. The improvised switch went, and more and more of the forward zone disappeared. It was a hot, clear spring afternoon, and in the open fighting the enemy came on like troops at manoeuvres. On the left they got into the battle zone, and I can see yet Lefroy's great figure leading a counter-attack in person, his face all puddled with blood from a scalp wound. I would have given my soul to be in two places at once, but I had to risk our left and keep close to Masterton, who needed me most. The wood of La Bruyere was the maddest sight. Again and again the Bosch was almost through it. You never knew where he was, and most of the fighting there was duels between machine-gun parties. Some of the enemy got around behind us, and only a fine performance of a company of Cheshires saved a complete breakthrough. As for Lefroy, I don't know how he stuck it out, and he doesn't know himself he was galled all the time by that accursed flanking fire. I got a note about half-past four, saying that Wake had crossed the river 
but it was some weary hours after that before the fire slackened. I tore back and forward between my wings, and every time I went north I expected to find that Lefroy had broken. But by some miracle he held. The Boches were in his battle zone time and time again, but he always flung them out. I have a recollection of Blenkiron, stark mad, encouraging his Americans with strange tongues. Once as I passed him I saw that he had his left arm tied up. His blackened face grinned at me. "'This bit of landscape's mighty unsafe for democracy,' he croaked. "'For the love of Mike, get your guns onto those devils across the river. They're plaguing my boys too bad.' It was about seven o'clock, I think, when the flanking fire slacked off, but it was not because of our divisional guns. There was a short and very furious burst of artillery fire on the north bank, and I knew it was British. Then things began to happen. One of our planes— they had been marvels all day, swinging down like hawks for machine-gun bouts with the Bosch infantry, reported that Mitchinson was attacking hard and getting on well. That eased my mind, and I started off for Masterton, who was in greater straits than ever, for the enemy seemed to be weakening on the river-bank and putting his main strength in against our right. But my GSO, too, stopped me on the road. "'Wake,' he said. "'He wants to see you.' "'Not now,' I cried. He can't live many minutes. I turned and followed him to the ruinous cowshed, which was my divisional headquarters. Wake, as I heard later, had swum the river opposite the Mitchinson's right, and reached the other shore safely, though the current was whipped with bullets. But he had scarcely landed before he was badly hit by shrapnel in the groin. Walking at first with support, and then carried on a stretcher, he managed to struggle on to the divisional headquarters, where he gave my message and explained the situation. He would not let his wound be looked to till his job was done. Mitchinson told me afterwards that with a face grey from pain he drew for him a sketch of our position, and told him exactly how near we were to our end. After that he asked to be sent back to me, and they got him down to Loisy in a crowded ambulance, and then up to us in a returning empty. The M.O. who looked at his wound saw that the thing was hopeless, and did not expect him to live beyond Loisy. He was bleeding internally, and no surgeon on earth could have saved him. When he reached us he was almost pulseless, but he recovered for a moment and asked for me. I found him, with blue lips and a face drained of blood, lying on my camp bed. His voice was very small and far away. "'How goes it?' he asked. "'Please God, we'll pull through, thanks to you, old man.' "'Good,' he said, and his eyes shut. He opened them again. "'Funny thing, life. A year ago I was preaching peace. I'm still preaching it. I'm not sorry.' I held his hand till two minutes later he died. In the press of a fight one scarcely realizes death, even the death of a friend. It was up to me to make good my assurance to wake, and presently I was off to Masterton. There, in that shambles of La Bruyere, while the light faded, there was a desperate and most bloody struggle. It was the last lap of the contest. Twelve hours now, I kept telling myself, and the French will be here and will have done our task. Alas, how many of us would go back to rest! Hardly able to totter, our counter-attacking companies went in again. They had gone far beyond the limits of mortal endurance, but the human spirit can defy all natural laws. The balance trembled, hung, and then dropped the right way. The enemy impetus weakened, stopped, and the ebb began. I wanted to complete the job. 
Our artillery put up a sharp barrage, and the little I had left comparatively fresh, I sent in for a counterstroke. Most of the men were untrained, but there was that in our ranks which dispensed with training, and we had caught the enemy at the moment of lowest vitality. We pushed him out of La Bruyere, we pushed him back to our old forward zone, we pushed him out of that zone to the position from which he had begun the day. But there was no rest for the weary. We had lost at least a third of our strength, and we had to man the same long line. We consolidated it as best we could, started to replace the wiring that had been destroyed, found touch with the division on our right, and established outposts. Then after a conference with my brigadiers I went back to my headquarters, too tired to feel either satisfaction or anxiety. In eight hours the French would be here. The words made a kind of litany in my ears. In the cowshed where Wake had lain, two figures awaited me. The talc-enclosed candle revealed Hamilton and Amos, dirty beyond words, smoke-blackened, blood-stained, and intricately bandaged. They stood stiffly to attention. "'Sir, the prisoner,' said Hamilton, "'I have to report that the prisoner is dead.' I stared at them, for I had forgotten Ivory. He seemed a creature of a world that had passed away. "'Sir, it was like this.' Ever since this morning the prisoner seemed to wake up. You'll mind that he was in a kind of a dream all week. But he got some new notions in his head, and when the battle began he exhibited signs of restlessness. Whilst he would lie down in the trench, and whilst he was wanted back to the dugout. According to instructions I provided him with a rifle, but he didn't seem to ken how to handle it. It was your orders, sir, that he was to have means to defend himself if the enemy came on, so Amos gave him a trench knife. But very soon he looked as if he was Etlin to cut his throat, so I deprived him of it." Hamilton stopped for breath. He spoke as if he were reciting a lesson, with no stops between the sentences. "'I jealoused, sir, that he wouldn't last out the day, and Amos here was of the same opinion. The end came at twenty minutes past three. I ken the time, for I had just compared my watch with Amos. You'll mind that the Germans were beginning a big attack. We were in the front trench of what they call the battle zone and Amos and me was keeping our eyes on the enemy, who could be observed dribbling over the open. Just then the prisoner catches sight of the enemy, and jumps up on top. Amos tried to hold him, but he kicked him in the face. The next weekend he was running very fast towards the enemy, holding his hands over his head, and crying out loud in a foreign language. It was German, said the scholarly Amos, through his broken teeth. It was German, continued Hamilton. It seemed as if he was appealing to the enemy to help him, but they paid no attention, and he came under fire of their machine-guns. We watched him spin round like a teetotum, and kenned that he was by with it. "'You were sure he was killed?' I asked. "'Yes, sir. When we counter-attacked, we found his body.' There is a grave, close by the farm of Gavrel, and a wooden cross at its head bears the name of the Graf von Schwabing and the date of his death." The Germans took Gavrel a little later. I am glad to think that they read that inscription. End of chapter 21